Welcome back, dear listener, to the Life and Times of Warwick's Farm. I'm fast running out of my comfort zone. There's only two chapters of Canterbury Tales left to uh, read to you. So um, I'm going to have to start to ad-lib even more. We've had quite a sad week this week. It's been a bit tough. Robbie, our wonderful Cooney Cooney pig, has finally passed away at the age of 14. 14 years old. He was a, a real trepid to the end though. About two days before he passed, a tourist managed to squeeze a piece of uh, apple between his lips and he enjoyed his last his last interaction with the tourist. He'd been slowing down over the last couple of years, he'd been getting a bit, a bit tired, but he was, um, right until the, up until the last couple of days, he was still racing, not racing around the paddock, but he's still wandering around the paddock, eating the grass, enjoying the sunshine. Um, it was nice though that when he did leave us, we found him in the morning, and he was lying in his little uh, little pig house, snuggled up nice and close to Betty, and well, Betty woke up and went about her day, but uh, Robbie had left. But uh, it was nice that he he went in his in his sleep, snuggled up to Betty. Fourteen years, it's a long time. It's really hard to get your head around him not being with us anymore. He came to us as a pet. He was about three months old when we we brought him back in the in the car in a little box, with a little grunting, grunting, <laughs> squirming around trying to get out. And over the years, he gave us dozens and dozens of the most wonderful piglets. Him and, him and Rosie were such a, an endearing couple. He's also been such an inspirational pig. I remember many years ago, I was uh, googling um, pictures of pigs, and I found one of Robbie. And I thought, well, that's interesting. Let's put, that photograph isn't one of ours, and it hasn't come from our website. So, so Because I recognised him, so I clicked on it, and it took us to a Facebook page owned by a, uh, a lady in the Netherlands. And uh, she had placed this f- photograph there, asking fellow pig lovers how they had got involved with pigs, and to send a picture and uh, tell them, tell her their stories. And she related her story, and that involved Robbie. And she said many years ago, while she was on holiday in New Zealand, she stayed at a place called Warwick's Farm and met Robbie the Cooney Cooney pig. And to cut a long story short, she ended up going back to the Netherlands, establishing a pig farm. Uh, mainly um, featuring Cooney Cooney pigs, and um, and uh, just shows what an inspirational pig he he, he is. She she's never been in touch with us, so we would never I would never have known unless I'd found the photograph. But he was a real inspiration. He uh, he was a type of pig who always made you smile. You couldn't help it. He um, he would come racing up to you, not always looking for food. He was a companionable old fella. He disliked company. If there was food involved. He uh, he very much appreciated it, but uh, it wasn't all about the food. He just wanted to wanted to hang out. Many of our guests either described him as the most ugly pig they'd ever seen, or as the most beautiful, depending on depending on the way he looked at it with his quite scary tusks and his big hairy face. But I think they all agreed he was the most wonderful of pigs. He was uh, he's going to be sorely missed. Rest in peace, Robbie. We will miss you. And now we'll uh, begin the chapter of uh, today's chapter of Canterbury Tales. It's called Decent Exposure, Chapter 16. As the years go by and we live the lifestyle along with its ups and downs and challenges and joys, 
We may not enjoy much in the way of prosperity or leisure time, but the time we have is quality time, surrounded by the things we love. Concentrating on what we do at Warwick's Farm, we often do not notice how far we have come, and it is the occasional wake-up from the outside world that gives us a bit of perspective. An example of this is the increasing number of phone calls and emails we receive, generally two or three a week, from people seeking either our advice on the care of, or problems with, their animals, or wanting to purchase some of ours. Google being an everyday part of people's worlds, it's not long before we are found either through our site or on other listings, especially the Rare Breeds Conservation Society website. At first this was rather daunting. Who did people think we were, to come to us for advice, a redundant businessman and a retired nurse? It was only after speaking to these callers at length about the given subject that we realised just how much knowledge we had gained through sheer experience, backed up with our own research to attend to our own needs. Some of the assistance Elaine has given has been ongoing, resulting in immense satisfaction. A recent case in point was the increasing concern of an older lady owner of a very pregnant miniature kunikuni sow crossed with a full-size kunikuni boar, who appeared to be overdue. She had never owned pigs before and was besotted with them and anguished about making sure all would be well with the birthing. Over the course of a few weeks, there were numerous conversations of various lengths about the matter, and eight piglets were duly born to Elaine's and the owner's delight. However, that was not the end of the matter. A further few weeks' worth of conversation regarded the run to the litter ensued. The little fella was just not growing, although it did appear that he was getting his share of his mother's bounty. The inevitable death of the little thing due to a birth defect was anticipated by Elaine, who eased the owner into her upcoming grief with care and sensitivity, her nursing experience coming into play. A few months later, her and her husband made the long trip up to Warwick's farm to meet us and put a face to that lovely lady I am proud to call my wife and thank her so much for her help. They were also delighted to see what purebred miniature kunikunis were like when we all spent some quality time with Robbie and Rosie. Other inquiries we have had have led us to meeting up with a variety of owners of chickens and sheep and goats to name a few. Elaine has become our resident unpaid animal consultant on the farm. It was very gratifying one day when Elaine answered a call for assistance from Te Papa, the National Museum of New Zealand in Wellington. Preparing for their upcoming Kahu Ora Living Cloaks education program, showcasing the world's largest collection of Maori cloaks, they come across a mystery. The cloaks are regarded as living cloaks and carry powerful stories of, of their weavers and wearers a continuing link between Maori ancestors and descendants. So it was important that everything was done correctly. A very unusual fibre had been found in one of the ancient cloaks and they needed to discover what it was and they wanted to scientifically compare it with pure angora stroke mohair fibre to see if it was of woolly goat origin. We were only too happy to oblige and send off a sample for them to examine. Te Papa came back to us, thanking us for our assistance and sending us some information on the exhibition and confirming that they had now solved the mystery, and it had indeed come from an Angora goat, which, not being native to New Zealand, must have quietly sneaked into the country many, many years ago. Hanging up the telephone, we felt very proud to be consultants to the National Museum of New Zealand. One afternoon, we received a phone call from Keith Stewart, who at the time hosted the Saturday evening primetime slot of a national radio station, a show celebrating food and wine. He was doing some research for a feature, on where our finer food comes from before it reaches the chef's kitchen. I was able to give him a rundown on our three varieties of rare-breed ducks, all of whose bodies are too heavy for them to fly. One thing led to another, and we spent an enjoyable time discussing Warwick's farm creatures. 
So enjoyable was the time that before he hung up, he asked me if I wouldn't mind being part of his show in a couple of weeks' time, for about five to ten minutes, so he could interview me and I could repeat some of my stories. The night Julie arrived and I was into my third glass of red by 8.30pm, feeling a little nervous about addressing the whole nation, when his producer rang to put me on standby. Not wanting to be distracted by the family laughing at me, I took the phone into the bedroom and anxiously waited, watching myself in the wall to see it in closet door mirrors, nervously gulping my, my wine glass. I do not presume in any, any way to be an entertainer, but the 5-10 to ten minutes turned into close to 30 minutes as I watched myself in the mirror, arms gesticulating dramatically as I waxed lyrical about our feathered creatures and the antics they get up to. A still chuckling Keith Stewart thanked me very much as the programme broke for the news and I hurriedly got in a plug for our website and returned buzzing to the lounge room and the applause of the family. Twelve months later, we received a call from the host of a popular country life programme on Radio National who asked if he and a soundman could come and spend some time with me walking along Poultry Lane, discovering our red breed chickens. Once again, we were more than happy to oblige and expose our business even more, and a time and date was agreed. Unfortunately, the date and the hour before the agreed time have become the infamous have become infamous as the day of the devastating Christchurch earthquake on February the 11th, 2011. We have not heard any more from them. That is not surprising, as the studio was based in the heart of the red zone in the central city, which is still, as I write, a no-go area. A month or so later, we were contacted by a representative of the Canterbury team of a sport that we had never heard of, Ultimate Frisbee. The art of beach and park frisbee throwing has been formalised into a team sport that is now played by millions of people around the world, and much to our surprise, we were about to become involved in it, albeit in a very small way. The Canterbury team was known as the Black Sheep, and they must have been pretty good as they had been invited to participate in a tournament in Australia. Breaking into the big time, they decided they needed to have a professional playing strip, and they rang us to inquire if someone could visit us and take some photographs of our black sheep. The tournament was fast approaching, and time was of the essence. But unfortunately, the winter weather was turning nasty, and photo opportunities were not presenting themselves. So in desperation, they asked us if we had any photos of a black sheep we could send them. We found a lovely shot of a fully fleeced jack, the black Romney ram, standing on green grass with the red barn in the background, framed with blue sky, and Julie sent it off to them. Being sports lovers, especially of Canterbury teams, we were more than happy to assist. A few weeks later, we received a call from the team rep, once again thanking us for helping them, and advising us that while not winning the tournament, they had achieved very creditable third placing quite an achievement against the best teams in Australia. They were also sending us one of the playing strips as a, as a thank you. We were expecting to see a shirt featuring Jack and all his fleecy black glory, accompanied by the team's name, but we were absolutely delighted with what emerged from the package. They had used the whole photograph and bled the blue of the sky into the rest of the strip, giving it a striking light blue look, and our shirt had the number 99 on its blue back. What struck us most was the fact that the red barn that we use as our logo was featured nearly as prominently as Jack. Warwick's farm was now being showcased in the playing fields of the world, we told ourselves with proud smiles. Another opportunity that we enthusiastically embraced was when we had a call from Whitebait Productions that produced a popular programme for one of the television networks called Animal Academy. The show was hosted by Sarah Ulmer, the New Zealand Olympic cycling gold medalist, and Jeremy Maguire, the head ranger at Willowbank, a wildlife reserve. 
We were asked if we wanted to participate in the production of an episode that would entail Warwick's farm and our animals being featured in the six links that form the structure of the show, leading into the program's different segments. The first link would introduce Warwick's farm and what we were all about, and the others would feature a different type of animal. The filming would take place around the barn, Rosie's Picklet Nursery and Poultry Lane. It was an unusually cold, overcast and windy February day when the film crew of five arrived and began setting up. Sarah, having a cyclist's lean body, was feeling the cold and retreated to the warmth of the barn. I surmised that as the star of the show and such a high-profile sporting personality, she would simply do her bits to camera and remain aloof from the rest of us and the proceedings and the comfort of the barn. Hope you don't mind me sitting in here, she politely asked with a rueful smile before continuing, because I'm bloody freezing. She turned out to be an absolute delight to work with, spending much of the five hours it took to complete the filming, standing outside wrapped in a blanket, laughing and joking along with everyone. In fact, both Sarah and Jeremy, being animal lovers, took any qualms we had about our wonderful creatures being either camera shy or just plain unhelpful away, as they patiently laughed away the many extra takes it took to get it all perfect. The first segment on our guinea pigs featured Ginny, also known as Grinny Pig and they continually fluffed their lines, trying to get her intro correct. Grinny, the guinea, grinny, cut! The rabbits were probably the easiest animals to work with, sitting calmly in their arms as they introduced the different breeds. The cooney-cooney piglets were certainly the noisiest, if not the most popular creatures with the crew, as they squealed away in the firm grip of Jeremy's hands. Off camera, Elaine's hands were working away, proffering slices of apple to keep the little fellas all in the same place. I was just considering heading to the kitchen during a break to make some sandwiches and coffee for us all when a van slowly drove up the raceway to the barn and to my delight it was the catering van dropping off a basket full of delicious goodies. With the weather starting to improve the day seemed to be getting better and better. After an enjoyable half hour of showbiz feasting we were back into it. Tracy the Angora cross goat at the time was still a young kid and full of the joys of life and was looking adorable with her long, silky white curly locks. The idea was that Sarah would briefly interview me about her, and then I would call her, and she would trot into shot for a cuddle. Well, that was the theory anyway. After about five takes, where she would run into shot uncalled for mid-interview, we decided at best if someone held her back. That, however, was not conducive to good interviewing, due to the loud background noise of a very upset goatling. We ended up doing the shot with me holding her in my arms and everyone seemed very happy, especially the cameraman, who was keeping a nervous eye on his supply of film. The last link entailed a stroll with Sarah along Poultry Lane, accompanied by Barty the Rooster. By now it was mid-afternoon, and the free rangers, noticing action along the lane, and hoping for an early feed, arrived in droves. It was quite an ordeal keeping straight faces, as we walked along in front of the cameraman and salmon, who were operating their expensive high-tech equipment as they walked backwards towards the tsunami of incoming chooks, ducks, turkeys, pigeons and assorted other poultry and waterfowl. Fortunately, all went well and no humans, creatures or equipment were damaged in the production that culminated in a high five from Barty and great national publicity for Warwick's Farm. The most regular form of exposure Warwick's Farm has is in the alpaca show ring at the agricultural and pastoral AMP shows we have been attending with our alpacas for over a decade now. It sounds like an easy operation. Just load your alpacas into your float when it's time. Let the judge check them out and give you your ribbons and head off home again after a look around the show. Unfortunately, there is more to it than that. 
The shows we usually attend are the Ellesmere and Ashburton AMP shows, and some years other ones farther afield. These shows are in October and November, when the fully fleeced alpacas are looking their best, and before it gets too hot for them as summer approaches. Planning for the shows begins early in the year, when we decide which ones we are going to show, usually two, three or four of them, and then in August we begin the halter training for the younger ones. Bearing in mind that alpacas have only recently been become domesticated, the young alpaca, who has never been handled before, apart from being petted, tends to take ex- exception to being split from his paddock mates and gently restrained, while a halter is placed around its head. They all have their own personalities, and some take more exception to others, but they all tend to act like a bucking bronco as they take their first few steps attached to a lead rope. We find that it takes about three weeks of consistent training, of up to 30 minutes a day, to get them show ready. It is not only the walking that is practiced, but also the standing with a model-like pose, while the judge pokes and prods and examines them that are polished. Having got the young alpacas trained and the older ones back up to speed, we now have the quandary of how to get them to the show. Fortunately, we have some fellow alpaca breeders who are good friends and have allowed us to use their float over the years. Show day arrives and we are up at Sparrow's Fart as the alpacas need to be there and penned long before the show opens to the public. It usually takes a bit of a push here and a pull there to get the alpacas up the ramp and into the float, but once in, they settle down into a sitting position on the floor and enjoy the ride. Being curious animals, our alpacas cannot believe their eyes when they, all, when they see all the hustle and bustle of people and vehicles and another hundred or so other alpacas. They are always so good and calmly let us lead them to their pen, where they settle in for the duration and soak up the atmosphere and the many scents that assail their flaring nostrils. We are very proud to admit that we have never attended a show and not come away with at least one ribbon and have a host of blue and red ribbons among our collection. What gives us the most satisfaction of all is the fact that our alpacas are competing with and matching some of the best quality alpacas in the country. Many breeders have entered the alpaca industry fully resourced, and due to the selective purchasing of bloodlines and good husbandry, have herds of stunning alpacas that they regularly display at the shows, which is what it is all about. Our original very basic herd has over the last 15 years due to Elaine's meticulous studies and implementation of our packer genetics, has consistently improved year by year. We have never had the funds to purchase the very best bloodlines, so we have had to grow our own, with the judicious use of particular stud males from a leading alpaca stud. While much of our competitors in the show ring have the luxury of selecting from a number of alpacas for a particular class, we have only one, and that one is competitive, and that gives us, especially Elaine, a great thrill. Not everything goes according to plan though. A few years ago we entered a stunning honey-coloured alpaca called Jolene. She had been a delight to train and we were expecting great things from her. As the judge approached her to look at her mouth and teeth, I did not know whether it was the perfume she was wearing or what it was, but Jolene let go this big gob of green slime at her, pretty much at point-blank range. Alpaca judging in the show ring takes many hours and is usually a pretty sedate thing to watch, but Jolene certainly livened up that morning's judging. I stood there, stiffly adding my words of mortified apology to the comforting words of the stewards, who I noticed were stepping out of Jolene's range. Proceedings were temporarily halted as the judge cleaned her spectacles and the steward ran off to find her a towel to wipe her unhappy green face. Suffice to say that Jolene did not end the show with a ribbon that day. Thank you for listening. We'll talk to you next time.